Well, we're in Romans chapter 2, and we begin today in chapter 2, verse 12. And it's been a a few weeks since we've been in Romans, so I want to remind you that Paul is continuing a line of thought here that he actually started back in chapter 1, verse 18, where he demonstrates that God's wrath is justified. God's wrath with the human race is right, and that it is being revealed From heaven. And this is because the human race as a whole suppresses the knowledge of God and willfully rejects Him. This is the bad news that lays the groundwork for the good news of the gospel. The hope and the truth that Paul is going to explain. It starts off with bad news. The entire human race suppresses the knowledge of God and willfully rejects him. In chapter 2, verse 1, then, Paul confronts the person who would say, Aha, but not me. I have the light. I have a special relationship with the judge. And so I have his favor and I have his kindness. I'm exempt from his wrath. To this, Paul says, the problem is you practice the same rebellion. You do the same things that the rest of the human race does. And yes, God has shown you kindness, but you presume on God's kindness by not turning from your rebellion, which is the purpose of his kindness and his favor toward you. It is that you would repent of the sin, the rebellion that the entire human race has fallen into. And by simply saying, I have God's kindness, I have God's favor, is to presume on his kindness. And in the end, Paul says, God is impartial. There's no partiality with him. And his goal in these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2 is to strip away any false security. It is this last truth then in verse 11, for God shows no partiality that kind of carries Paul into verses 12 through 29, where he shows that everybody is on equal footing before God. Romans chapter 2, and I actually want to begin with verse 11. Through 29. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Father, these are your words for us today, and may we come to them with humility and with wonder. And we ask that you would open our minds to understand their meaning and their importance for us. That we would not cling to any false security. Amen. Now Paul's point is simply this, that just having special revelation does not make someone right before God. He's just warned us against holding on to any false security, and now he says that even having God's revelation doesn't make you secure because God is impartial. This stripping of our security sounds harsh. It sounds critical. It might even sound to some as though it is condescending. Is it arrogance to strip away other people's perceptions, their opinions of what is right and wrong? To borrow an illustration, what if you were to invest into an insurance policy that would protect not only yourself, but your spouse and your children from catastrophe in a time of catastrophe? And you were to invest money into this insurance policy and count on that every time you contemplated, some great catastrophe would happen. And then someone comes to you and says, I've just discovered that that insurance policy that you've been buying into, it's a scam. The whole thing's a scam. In fact, that company doesn't even exist How would you respond to that person? Would you say something like, oh, you know what? I just don't need that negativity in my life. I just, here I was, everything was fine. I had complete confidence in this insurance policy, and now you're telling me that it's the whole thing is a scam. And yes, I see your evidence, and I hear what you're saying, but I just don't need that right now. I, that's, I feel like you're criticizing my decision to buy into this policy. You're treading on my freedom to invest where I think the insurance policy should be. And I find that very arrogant of you to tell me that you think it's a scam. No. We'd say, oh, and we'd be disappointed. We'd be frustrated. We might be angry at being taken in. But the person who's telling us this, who's, who's ta- uh, dispelling the illusion that this insurance policy is a scam, we'd say, thank you. Oh, thank you. Because I thought I would be secure from catastrophe and that my family would be safe. They'd be provided for. And now I find out they won't. That's a good truth to know. We'd say thank you. You see, according to chapter 1 in Romans, God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature in the created world. But nature, natural revelation, is not enough to deliver us from our separation from God. But it is enough to make us guilty before God to make us culpable. But what about someone who says they have a different insurance policy? What about someone who says, I've received special revelation though, a revelation that explains to me God's will, his standards, that explains what is right and what is wrong. 
It provides a way to know this God and to have a relationship with this God. You see, that's what the law was. When Paul speaks of the law here, he means what we know are the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is the law proper. Sometimes it is called the Mosaic law because it is through Moses that this law was given to the people of Israel. It's also called the Mosaic covenant. Those who deal with Old Testament scholarship and the Bible, they will call it Torah, teaching, instruction, because the law taught, it explained how to please God, how to live in a certain way to be his people. And it's important to understand what the law is because Paul talks about the law quite a bit in the book of Romans. The law then is not just a rule book of do's and don'ts. It was a revelation of who God is and how people can please him and how those who would call themselves his people are set apart to him. Its rules, all of its laws, all of its codes and regulations governed their relationship with God and with each other. So it set them apart to God as his people. And no wonder someone who was Jewish would read Romans chapter 1 and say, whew, whew, I'm glad that's not me. I have the law. I have this body of truth, this revelation that sets me apart, that gives me this privileged place in the world and among humanity. So having the law then was knowing the truth. It was this provision of access to God in his will. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 29, reveals four reasons that having the law is a false security. That even this, even having this knowledge of the truth, doesn't exempt anyone from God's impartial judgment. The first reason Paul gives is found in verses 12 and 13. Only doers are justified. Only doers, that's doers of the law, only doers are justified. In verses 12 through 13, Paul describes, you look at them, four categories of people. First, there are those without the law. Who's that? Well, these are the Gentiles. These are the nations. This is most of us. Paul describes us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, as alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what it means to be without the law. No access to God, no covenant relationship with him, no basis on which to seek him or to know him. This is everybody in Romans chapter 1. So, first of all, Paul says there are those without the law. Then he identifies some people as under the law. These are obviously the Jews, the Israelites, to whom God gave the law. See, again, to the Israelite, the law was not a ball and chain. It wasn't like, oh, man, the rest of the world gets to live the way they want to, and we've got to live under this law and this code and do all of these things. No, the Israelites said, this is the light. We've been given a special knowledge that the rest of the world doesn't have. The one true God has set us apart. He's called us to himself, set us apart to be his people. This is a pathway to life and to blessing. It, set, it sets us apart. It set them apart, but it also in their minds made them superior to the rest of the world. Now, don't miss Paul's point about these two groups, okay? Those without the law perish without the law. This is the entire rebellious human race 
suppressing the truth, Romans chapter one, with darkened hearts is destined to perish. On the other hand, those under the law will be judged by the law, which, watch, does not mean they are exempt from perishing. It simply means that when it comes to being uh, uh, judged for perishing, those without the law have no basis for anything. Those with the law will be judged according to it whether or not they perish or not. The person who has the law has the opportunity to escape perishing. And when judged, their condemnation will be determined by the law's criteria because they were under the law. So this is the first division then of the human race, two categories, those without the law and those under the law. But verse 13 then divides the human race into two other categories. You see them? There are the hearers of the law and doers of the law. And here's the key to understanding what God is saying here. The hearers of the law, watch, are the same group as those who are under the law. That's the same group of people. Those who are under the law are those who are hearing it or receiving it. By hearing it, he doesn't just mean audibly hearing somebody read it or say it. He means someone who is, according to the book of Deuteronomy, receiving the law day in and day out. It's written on the doorposts of their, of their home. It's, it's written on the front of their heads. It's in the front of their minds. They recite it. They learn it. They know it. They've received it. That's what the hearers of the law are. This means those without the law are non-hearers. Okay, following me? So we have those without the law, and we have those who are under the law. Those who are under the law are hearers of the law, which means that those without the law are non-hearers. Now, Paul doesn't use the term non-hearers, but you'll see why it's important in a second. So in one sense, then, Paul is really still only talking about two groups of people. He's talking about those without the law who are non-hearers, and he's talking about those with the law who are hearers. But what about the doers of the law then? Well, this is the most important category. And this is a category, the doers of the law, because uh, who belong to, can belong to either group. The doers of the law are the only ones who will be justified before God. And they can come from either of these categories. Those without the law, non-hearers, or those under the law, the hearers of the law. Now, this word that Paul uses, justified, is the same word that's been used already in Romans and is used throughout the Bible, righteous or righteousness. This is the verb, to be just, to justify or to be justified. It means to be made righteous. To be justified means to be brought into a right standing before God. And you can see in verse 13 here that he, he uses a parallel, righteous before God, justified. It's the language of a courtroom where a, a, a guilty person charged with a crime is standing before the judge and is declared just or right or square with the judge. Listen, there is no truth more important in the gospel than how to be justified. Eternity depends upon it. In chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel reveals how to be made right with God, how to be justified. 
But Paul's point here then in verses 12 and 13 is that God shows no partiality. Only doers of the law will be justified. So being under the law, being a hearer of the law, does not justify anybody. It doesn't make anybody righteous before God. Paul's second reason then is this. So the first one is this. Only doers, doers of the law, will be justified. His second reason is non-hearers can be doers. Non-hearers can be doers. Non-hearers of the law can be doers of the law. Having and hearing the law does not create a special class of people who are exempt from God's judgment. Non-hearers, verse 14, Gentiles who do not have the law, hmm, they can be doers. How is this so? Because at times they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, meaning that even without illumination, even without guidance from outside of themselves, the law, humanity knows right from wrong and does it sometimes. This would be like... uh, Even though the human race is left out in the woods in the mountains with no compass and no maps, they can still, because of how God has created them, figure out which direction is north. It doesn't mean they can get out of the woods or off the mountain, but they can figure out which direction is north. This shows, Paul says here, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, just to be clear, this is not the same as the new covenant promise we find in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord is promising, even in the midst of sending the Babylonians into Israel, Judah, for the sake of captivity, 70 years, to discipline the people because they did not keep the law. Even in the midst of that, God makes a promise and he says, one day I'll establish a new covenant. And part of that new covenant will be, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, which means he's saying, I will transform the hearts of people so that they receive my law with joy and keep it. Now, this is something that Paul will actually talk about later on in Romans as we go. But here in Romans 2, Paul is saying that God's standard of right and wrong, a knowledge of what the law requires, is hardwired into every person. That's why in chapter 1, verse 21, he said, They knew God. The human race as a whole knew God. They, they are, we are higher, hardwired, every person is hardwired with this knowledge of God, of this right and wrong, what the law requires, even to the extent that without the law, we are in conflict over right and wrong as our consciences sometimes accuse us, and sometimes excuse us. This is why we see even people who don't know God, who don't claim to know Christ, the the world in general, our culture, wrestle with right and wrong. And it explains why there's so much good and compassion in the world. It's why moms love their children. A mom doesn't have to be a Christian to love their kids. Why is that? It's why there's generosity to victims of natural disasters. It's why we have laws that punish crimes and courts that provide justice. 
We know that the Bible teaches that every person is corrupt and sinful and in need of forgiveness. That's what the Bible says. We are darkened in our hearts. We are separated from God. We're alienated from him. We're in the world without God, without hope. That's every person. It's where we start. And the condition of every human heart is one of rebellion. We call this the doctrine of total depravity, which means that no person is naturally good, that When you break it all down, every person is naturally bad. And that is countercultural to everything the humanity says about itself. But I think sometimes when people outside of the Christian faith hear us talk about total depravity and this condition of corruption... It sounds deficient to them. It sounds like baloney. It is because humanity does so much good as it does evil. But we understand that total depravity doesn't mean that every person does only evil and they do only evil all the time and that they do the greatest evil that they have the capacity to do. That's not what total depravity is. Total depravity means that because of the condition of our hearts born from our very birth in rebellion against God, that we don't have a capacity to produce anything that's good enough to make us right with God. That's what really total depravity is. And Romans 2.15 helps explain why humanity is so capable of so much good. It is because they have a knowledge of God. There is an extent in which the work of the law is written on their hearts. But always remember this. Despite all of the, the relativism that our culture clings to and claims, what's right for me is right for me and what's right for you is right for you, And just because it's wrong for you doesn't make it wrong for me. There's no absolute to which we all must ascribe. That despite all of that, every person that you share the gospel with has the work of the law written on his heart or her heart. They may suppress the truth. They may reject the gospel. But they know which way north is. They're created to know it. And ultimately, it is this conflict that is caused by this knowledge of right and wrong within each person that will, you see here, bear witness against them on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is a look at the final judgment. This is the final assize when everybody stands before God. Because God knows the secrets of a person's heart, whether they're struggling over right and wrong and excusing, because the conscience is not foolproof. The conscience can be fooled. The conscience can be reconditioned to call right wrong and wrong right. But there still is this hard wiring, and people know it's wrong to do this, yet they do it anyway, and they shut their conscience down, and they excuse it. This, the fact that people struggle with right and wrong is what will, before God, be exposed and be the basis for judgment. Simply having the work of the law written on their hearts doesn't save anyone. Only doing the law. Only doing the law. Only doers are justified. But those without the law and those under the law, Paul is making this point, are on the same footing before the judge. Do you see? Everyone's on the same footing. Because just as non-hearers can be doers, hearers can be non-doers. This is his third reason. Hearers can be non-doers. 
Verse 17, those under the law can fail to do the law. And here Paul returns to his imaginary debater. And remember we talked about a diatribe, which is really just this a conversation with an imaginary person who represents the views of his audience. So here he goes. He's speaking to you again. And the you we see now, where before the you wasn't really defined, now the you is very specific. It is the Jew. It's the person who is under the law. It's the hearer of the law. Because it's the person under the law, it's the person who hears the law, who, he says here in verse 17, relies on the law and boasts in God. This is someone who says, I have the law. I have this get-out-of-jail-free card. If you've ever played Monopoly, the classic board game of all time, you end up in jail, but not if you have the little card that says get-out-of-jail-free card. In a very simplistic way, that's what Paul is saying, gives nobody any security. You can't just pull out the law and say, I've got the law. I've got the knowledge of right and wrong. I have this special relationship with the judge that's boasting in God. And here he exposes then the sources of their confidence, the things that make them think they are exempt from God's judgment. Verse 18, we know his will. We can approve what is excellent. We know this is right and pleases God, and we know that's wrong and displeases God. We have been instructed by the law. This is Torah. We've been trained. Verse 19, do you think you're a guide to the blind? If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, why would someone, a Jew, think that they were this? Because that's what God intended. God intended because he gave Israel the law, his law, right and wrong, that they would be a light to the nations. That people would see that's the way of blessing, that's the way of life, that's the way to know this one true God, that they would long for that, that they would come and know this God who has set apart this people to himself and given them this body of law and revelation and how to please him. And so it's not necessarily wrong or proud for someone to say, I have the law, I have a responsibility to be a guide to the blind. Those who are without the law have a responsibility to be a light to those who are in darkness. Who's that? Everybody else. Everybody without the law. But Paul is pointing to a certain level of hypocrisy, isn't he? If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, by foolish here is not an insult. He just, it's another way of saying the people who are out, they're, they're, they're ignorant. They don't have the law. They don't have this light. Teachers of children. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Is that who you are? If you're so certain of this, if you're so uh, if you're so ready to pull out this credential as an explanation for why you are exempt from God's judgment or on some different category or some different footing before the judge, then, verse 21, you, te you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? That's a rhetorical question. It is, it is an, uh, exposing them. You teach others, but you don't teach yourself. And he gives three illustrations here. Stealing, adultery, idolatry. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, robbing temples, that's kind of an oddity. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's really the only place that this word is used in the New Testament. Rob temples. It's actually one word. And probably what he's getting at, though nobody can, is, knows for sure, is that this, it's, uh, 
that's opposition to idolatry in their culture, the whole Roman system and all of that, and yet helping themselves, maybe even stealing, kiping stuff out of the temples, the materials for their own gain, whether it was made of uh, some precious metal or jewelry or whatever it might have been, and then liquidating it or using it and justifying it because we hate idolatry. It wasn't a common practice, but it fits with what Paul's saying here as a parallel. You say you shouldn't steal, but are you stealing? You say you shouldn't commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You say you hate idolatry, but you'll use it to fund your own pockets, fill your own pockets by robbing temples. All of this is hypocrisy. And it proves, and Paul's point is, that having the law, knowing the law, does not mean obeying it. It doesn't mean keeping it. Though boasting in it, you break it, verse 23. You break the law. And in verse 24, he says, even those without the law, the Gentiles see it. They see how you live. They see what you boast in and what you claim. And they say, who wants to serve a God of such hypocrisy? We ever hear that as God's people? Sometimes it's justified. Sometimes it's not, but sometimes it is. Who wants to serve a God of such hypocrisy? So Paul makes the point that non-hearers can be doers. That's proof that God is impartial, and hearers can be non-doers. It's possible to hear and be under the law and still not do it. His fourth reason, then, that the law is, a, is false security banking on keeping the law, both hearers and non-hearers need heart change. Everyone, everybody needs heart change. Every person. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, circumcision was obeying the law. The Mosaic law commanded circumcision. However, circumcision was not only part of the law, a sign of this covenant that came to the people through Moses, but it was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham. We find this in Genesis chapter 17, some several hundred years before the law of Moses was given. So circumcision was established as part of God's covenant with Abraham. The covenant of Moses then demanded it, but it was already in place before the law. God commanded that Abraham's male descendants be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And that this was necessary to belong to the people, Abraham's descendants, this new nation that God was promising. In fact, the consequence in Genesis chapter 17 was that the person would be cut off from God's people if they failed to be circumcised. This circumcision represented uh, this new identity at the most intimate part of a person. And God's promise to Abraham then that he would be fruitful and he would multiply and I will bring a whole nation out of you is related to this sign. This sign captures all of that. So the circumcision was given several hundred years before the law of Moses in fact, the law was given to Abraham's descendants who were circumcised. And I believe that's what Paul's talking about here. Paul says this special privileged position, even being circumcised, even claiming to be a child of Abraham, is only of value if you obey the law. 
If you break it, it's the same as being uncircumcised. It's the same as being disowned, cut off from being one of God's people. And Paul says the reverse is true. Someone who is uncircumcised but obeys the law is counted as circumcised. They could be counted as someone belonging to the people of God. Now, if you're Jewish and you're reading this, and you've never heard the gospel, you don't understand anything about it, this is absolute nonsense, frankly. This makes no sense, which is why Paul lays it out as part of the gospel. Because he's saying that an uncircumcised person will testify against you. An uncircumcised person who keeps the law will testify against you and expose your guilt for breaking the law. That's what he means here by they will condemn you. Even though you had the privilege of receiving the written code, you will be condemned by the testimony of someone who didn't have the written code but kept the law and is counted as circumcised. Paul just flips everything because only... Only the doers of the law are justified. Now, at this point, we have to ask the question, how is all of this relevant to us, right? In first century Rome, the church was made up of many Jews as well as Gentiles, and not just Jewish ethnically, but, but Jewish culturally and religiously who were coming into the church hearing the gospel, Many of them believing, becoming part of the Christian faith. So there is this dynamic that is especially relevant in this letter even to the Roman church. But it's not one that we face often today. Well, first of all, it's important for us because the plight of the human race, the entire human race, is key to the gospel, the gospel has history and the world in focus, not just me and you running around in, you know, northern Puget Sound area. And we need to understand God's plan and his redemption. It is part of the wonder of God's redemption, his salvation. Secondly, all of this that Paul is saying leads us to the need for this heart change. This transformation, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. You see the, the, the act of circumcision, the sign of circumcision, Genesis chapter 17, was a mark of identity. They were to obey, Abraham was to obey this, and all of his descendants were to obey this command to circumcise the boys on the eighth day of their birth as a way of identifying them, setting them apart. They belong to Abraham's people, they belong to the nation of Israel, and therefore they belong to God. That's what it was a, a sign for, a sign of. Circumcision was identity. A person's identity as someone who belongs to God, Paul is saying, is a matter of the heart. True transformation begins with a fundamental change of who I am. And it is a change that I cannot work and that you cannot work. This can only be done by the Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit. Only God, the Spirit, can do this. This is the first hint at the new covenant. And Paul's will rely more on as we go through Romans. It's the fact that this, I will write my law on their hearts, was because God promised in the new covenant to give his people his Spirit. It has to be a work of the Spirit. And this is not, when we talk about the Spirit here, by the Spirit, not by the letter, this isn't pitting the Spirit against the Bible. 
Like, we have to be changed by the Spirit, not by the Bible. We don't even know about the Holy Spirit without the Bible. You can't read this verse and say that this is pitting the Spirit against the Bible. It's the Bible telling you this. But by the letter, when he says not by the letter, he means keeping the law externally. It's not actually having the letter, the law. We could, we could translate it, transfer it to us and say it's not actually having the Bible. That would be true. Actually having the Bible doesn't justify anybody. Hearing the Bible doesn't justify anybody. It is only responding to its message that will justify anybody. And once again, and some of you have probably been chafing a little bit. So I've been talking about only doers of the law are justified. Wait a second. Put my Reformation brakes on right here. Okay. What about grace? When are we getting to grace? Why are we so long in Romans chapter 2? Let's get to grace. That's coming up. Let's get to grace, though. What about this doing of the law stuff? I thought the Christian life wasn't a bunch of rules and checking off boxes and jumping through hoops. That's true. But that truth doesn't mean anything unless you understand that God's economy for the human race, his demands, are perfect obedience to the law. And the grace of God does not take that away. We'll see that. The grace of God that provides salvation is because God has met the demands of the law. Okay. But Paul is making the point that having the law, hearing the law, doesn't create a class of people who aren't answerable to God for how they live. Only doers of the law will be justified. In other words... What he's really, uh, Paul is not saying, go do the law and be justified. He is clarifying God's standard apart from the gospel. It is the demand of perfect obedience that makes the gospel the answer to our dilemma. He's going to make that very clear in the next passage, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. He's not pointing to, the way, the, uh, pointing to the way of salvation here. He is erasing any distinctions between those without the law and those under the law. That's what he's doing. He's saying, if, you're gonna, if this is the system for the entire human race, don't think because you have the law or have heard the law that somehow you have some special exemption. So then, where is your security? Is it in your knowledge? Is it in your heritage? Maybe you have a Christian heritage. Your parents are people of faith. They made you go to church from the day you were born till whenever they could make you, and now you go. So your parents' righteousness, their justification you think belongs to you. It doesn't. It might be your spouse's involvement. You know what? My wife is really involved at church. That's probably enough for the both of us, right? I, I know, I stay home and Seahawks games at 10 this morning. But she does enough for the both of us. And I think, you know, we're married. I kind of get included. Or vice versa. Wife, my husband is, his, his stuff counts, for, for this, for justifying before God. If you appeal to any position or credential outside of Christ, Paul says there is only one that has any credibility in attaining righteousness before God, and that is doing the law perfectly. Can you do that? Can I do that? No, we can't. That's why Paul eventually gets to verse, verses 28 29. We need a transformation of the heart by the Spirit. And every person must undergo that. No one can undergo that for you. 
To this, the gospel points us. This is the salvation that the gospel provides. Because Paul's conclusion, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, and following here is that no one is righteous. The reason he's doing all of this to erase all distinctions is to say, no one is righteous, no one can actually do the law. No one can actually do it. But that's the system, and not only those who do the law. It's, otherwise, it's, it's hypocrisy, which is why everyone's on the same footing. Those who have the law ultimately are hypocrites because they have the law and can't keep it. Those without the law are in the dark, and even though they potentially, because they're hardwired to know right and wrong, they don't do it either. That's the plight of the human race. That's our dilemma. Paul says there's got to be a transformation. How can we be transformed? How can we be changed? It's what the gospel tells us, that it is only by faith. It's only by faith in Christ. And Paul is going to give us all the details for that. But I encourage you today, ask yourself the question, where is my security? What really am I clinging to? What is the basis for my hope, my security, this insurance policy? What is it? Is it a scam or is it for real? That's the question we need to be asking ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, apart from you, we could not know you, but you have not left us in the dark. You indeed have sent a light. You indeed have revealed yourself, and in your grace you have made a way for all peoples to come to know you, to know this transformation, this circumcision of the heart. Lord, awaken those who are dead. Give new life to those who are in darkness and cannot respond. We pray that with all our hearts. We pray for your mercy. Let no one live with the illusion of any false security that somehow we can we, we qualify, we can claim some position or heritage. But Lord, let everyone come to you empty-handed with no other plea than the cross of Christ and his resurrection. In your name we ask these things, amen.